Good morning, Imago Day. It's a joy for me to be with you one more time, one final time before uh, you saints send me and Pastor Shane and uh, about 28, I believe, of your fellow members to Plant Risen Christ Church in Chapel Hill. And it seems a fitting goodbye that we would get to open up the scriptures and sit under God's word together one more time. It's a joy to sit under the Lord, the Lord's teaching through his word. I think this text this morning is one that I'm particularly excited about. It's one where we get to see the Apostle Paul make much of Jesus and glory in his current circumstance because what lies before what has happened to him, what he's experienced is so much greater. And so this morning, I pray that you will see a beautiful Savior, that you will see beyond the circumstance, that you will be able to rejoice with the Apostle Paul. Let's pray and we'll jump into the Word. God, thank you so much. Thank you that you speak, that you're not a God who is silent, but you're a God who speaks and is near. Thank you that we have your Word that we're not left in the dark wondering how we ought to live, but that you reveal yourself, you reveal your will, and by your Spirit, you guide us into all truth. So Lord, this morning, I pray that we would be shaped by your word, transformed by it. Make our lives cross-shaped lives that we might display the glory of Jesus. And do it by your word. Amen. I don't know if you guys have ever had the experience of giving up something good now for something better, perhaps later. I know there's a number of folks here uh, that I know personally that are in law school, a particular form of torture where for three years you give up, I think, everything, uh, and you give it up for something much greater. I think you maybe get a billboard with a cheesy smile and a cheesy slogan. Many of you perhaps were inspired by a great personal injury ad you saw on TV one day and said, that's what I want to do. And so you sacrificed three years in pursuit of that. I kid, I kid. There's a lot of good things that lawyers do, pursue justice, etc. Many of you are parents of littles as I am, and you give up many, many years, many, many hours of sleep. Uh, You give up your youthful good looks and your (laughs) colored hair and all kinds of things, your smooth skin. and you exchange it for something great. You know, kids who one day will look to you and say, I understand what you did, mom and dad. It all makes sense now. I'm so thankful for your sacrifices. <laughs> and I think it happens when they're teenagers, as I'm told. <laughs> well, Paul is in the middle of a larger argument in 1 Corinthians uh, where he is trying to get the church at Corinth to understand that this whole business of having rights and being strong and having knowledge is not what they think it is. And so here, Paul, in making that larger argument that they ought to sacrifice what perhaps is indeed rightfully theirs in service of others in order to display the glories of Christ, he's taking not a detour, but he's saying, let me illustrate with my life. He wants the church at Corinth to understand that their freedom is not something to be grasped and held on to, but rather something they should gladly give up in pursuit of something greater. In chapter 9, he's going to use his own life to illustrate precisely that point. Many of us have had the experience of learning to do something by watching somebody else do it well. Something breaks in your home, and you immediately go to YouTube and watch a plumber fix something, and you're like, I can do that now. 
and many hundreds of dollars later you discover, no, actually probably I couldn't, but I felt like I could. As I'm reflecting on 12 years of life with Imago Dei Church, uh, I remember very few sermons. That's not because Tony's not a great preacher, he's an excellent preacher, but we tend to forget those kinds of things. The things I have not forgotten in 12 years of being here is those sermons lived out by the saints of Imago Dei Church. It's your lives putting into practice what we have heard faithfully preached from the sermon from the pulpit every Sunday. It's your lives that stand out, fleshing out what is true. I'm reminded of some folks in particular. Uh, you guys probably didn't know me 12, 13 years ago, um, but I was kind of an idiot. Uh, and Pastor Matt Sigmund spent a lot of time with me very early in the morning uh, showing me how to take my head knowledge and actually live a life uh, that is pleasing to the Lord, uh, not just in theory but in practice. And his wife, Shauna, spent a lot of time with my now wife, Jillian, uh, doing the same thing. Uh, yeah, and that just goes unnoticed. But it's in observing others living their lives well, applying the sermon, so to speak, that we get to figure out what it looks like. I think of uh, the Nachnanis, Ashoka Michelle, who many, many years ago, as Ashoka was sharing his testimony, shared about being foster parents. And we got to spend time with them and see them live that out. And that was kind of the jumping off point for our own journey into foster care and adoption. I think of many, many growth group members over the years who have pressed into biblical community, even when it was hard, when it didn't feel rewarding, and yet they chose to press into community. I think of saints in this church who loved those who were hard to love, who forgave those who hurt them. I think of saints in this church who have shared their struggle of same-sex attraction despite the fear of being rejected, and they fought hard because Jesus was worth it. I think of unmarried saints in this church who've battled loneliness and at times just the awkward Christian subculture surrounding singleness and marriage and yet they persevered, they clung to the truth that Jesus is their portion, that he is enough, that that is a good portion, and that he withholds no good thing from his children. I think of saints who longed for children and whose prayers went unanswered for a long time, perhaps indefinitely. And they rejoiced with those who rejoiced. They gave their time, they sacrificed their talents to serve others, to be with others, to be with their brothers and sisters. And so the finest sermons aren't just the ones we hear. They're the ones that are lived out in the lives of God's people, where our lives bear the, the truth of what we have heard and what we proclaim. It's your lives, saints. It's your lives that echo the truth that we hear from here every Sunday morning. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. And that, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing in this text. He is taking his life and saying, it looks kind of like this. This is what it looks like. Not to make much of himself, but to make much of Christ. We're not just brains on sticks. We don't just need a bunch of information, a bunch of knowledge. Paul knows this, and so he's going to use his life in service of making the point. In a few weeks, you're going to get to chapter 11, verse 1, where he'll say, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So Paul's not just offering a how-to guide. At the heart of chapter 9 is the why behind the how. 
Beneath the command to do or not do in this case is an invitation to behold, to behold the glorious Christ. The murderer of Christians who's blinded on the, on the Damascus road by the risen Christ, he has his eyes opened to a new understanding of reality. In Philippians, he will declare to live is Christ. He has seen something that he cannot unsee. He's been radically transformed he had been dead without even realizing it, and now he's finally alive. He has to bear witness. He cannot help himself. And because he's living a new kind of life, his math is different. It's no longer this zero-sum game where he's got to grab on to what he can and not let go. Instead, now his new math is, what joy, what a privilege to give up everything because I belong to Christ. That's my glory. That's my crown. That is a man who has been transformed by beholding Christ as he is. Who does his math completely differently now? I wonder if the same is true of us. Have we looked at Christ in such a way that changes how we understand reality itself, where everything is reoriented around the fact that the risen Savior has loved a sinful people that we were the chief of sinners, each one of us, and he loved us. Have we beheld Christ in that way? Is our posture, Jesus demands a lot. It's kind of hard to follow Jesus. Or are we the kind of people that would gladly and willingly lay down our freedom, our rights, just out of sheer joy that we belong to Christ? Saints, our lives should be marked by joyful self-denial, as we bear witness to the gospel. In fact, that's how we bear witness to the gospel with our lives. And so my desire this morning is that you would catch even a glimpse of how beautiful and how magnificent the Savior is today. That as we look at Paul, we would see where he's pointing. And we would behold the majesty of Christ and worship him with our lives. We're going to break up today's text into two sections. First, Paul is going to defend his rights and then Paul is going to lay down his rights. So let's jump in. Paul defends his rights. Some have argued that this section, chapter 9, just stands out as, a, as an error in the text. It doesn't belong here. It doesn't fit. He's in the middle of an argument about food sacrifice to idols and freedom and strength and weakness. And then he's got this thing here about defending his apostleship. I actually think it fits quite neatly in the text. Paul's instruction, instructing the Corinthian church on their weaponizing of Christian freedom. And it seems that in that process, some people had called into question whether Paul was an apostle or not. And so here he's going to use his defense of his own apostleship, the very details of his approach, why he does what he does, to illustrate what it looks like to apply chapter 8 before he reaches a conclusion in chapter 10. Paul had come to Corinth and labored to have that church planted and established and in Acts uh, 18, we discover that he, while he was there, he engaged in tent making, the making of tents. That was his industry. He was good at that. That was his job. And so from the jump, we know that Paul had a job when he planted the church at Corinth. He stayed there for a long season, um, but he did not derive his income from planting that church. He derived it from making tents. And it seems that perhaps that very practice had called into question, is he really an apostle? Because he doesn't act like the other apostles. And Paul's going to describe, one, yes, I do have that right. And two, I lay down that right for a purpose. 
The first question that Paul asks, am I not free? That's where his larger argument is headed. That's how he connects chapter 8 to chapter 10. Am I not free? You Corinthians are boasting about freedom and knowledge and strength. Am I not free too? And then he will illustrate that with his life. But first, he builds this case. Have I not seen Jesus? This is a question highlighting the specific circumstances surrounding apostleship in the New Testament. The Lord appeared to Paul and set him aside for this particular purpose. In fact, in Acts 9, where we have the story of the Damascus Road, where Paul, the persecutor, witnesses the risen Christ on the road and is transformed radically. And Nias is called to lay hands on him and restore his sight. And the Lord tells Ananias, I will show him, that is Paul, how much he must suffer for my name. That is what Paul is called out for, to look like Jesus by suffering for his namesake. Paul doesn't stop there. He says, the crowning jewel, right? It's not just that he's seen Jesus, but the crowning jewel, the certificate of authenticity of his apostleship is the fact that the church in Corinth exists, that there are saints in Corinth who have been called out by Christ and are following him. That is the certificate. That is the proof. If not for the legitimacy of his apostleship, they would not be in Christ, and yet they are. And so in contrast to understandings of apostleship that might translate to power, Paul's going to sketch apostleship in terms that bear witness to the saving work of Jesus by taking on a cruciform shape. His ministry looks like Jesus' ministry. His life resembles Jesus' life, not in comfort, not in power, not in majesty, but in humility, in self-denial, in suffering. He's going to make the case for what is rightfully due an apostle, but it's not a power play, as he'll tell us. Like his Savior before him, he's going to follow a path where he declines what is rightfully his. He's going to decline right and recognition now in pursuit of something greater. So in verses 4 through 14, he lays out five pieces of support for his apostleship. He's answering the question, does an apostle have the right to earn their income from preaching the gospel? And the answer is an obvious yes. But he gives five pieces of support just so that there's no doubt. First, the practice of other apostles. He points to the established and accepted practice of the other apostles to eat and drink, that is, have their financial needs met, and to take along a believing wife, that is, the family's provisions are met also. Wives have to eat too. It's not just the husband, right? And then he asks the question, is it only Barnabas and I who don't have the right to refrain from working for a living? The implication there is clear. The other apostles are doing this. I am an apostle. You are the proof of my apostleship. I have seen Christ, and I have seen Christ at work in you through my faithful preaching. Don't I also have this right? The answer is yes. Yes, he does. And so he points then to another example, as if that is not evident enough. He says, number two, let's look at the experience of everyday life in verse seven. And here there's three short examples in one. There's three examples of just life observed that they would all be familiar with. First is a soldier who has paid wages for his work. Second, there's one who plants a vineyard who eats the fruit of that vineyard. And third, he offers the example of shepherds who get some of the milk from the flock that they tend to. All three examples are fed from their occupation. Regardless of the specific means, they're all fed by that work that they do. 
It's a commonly accept, accepted principle. You work and you eat from that work. And he says, this is my work. Three, he points to the commands of Scripture in verses 8 through 10. He's not only arguing from generally observed patterns of life. He's saying, let's look at God's law. What does God's law say about this? And he interprets here the law, do not muzzle the ox while it treads the grain, not as being merely about looking out for animals. He understands that it describes a principle that is widely applicable and ought to guide human affairs. Leon Morris points out that that passage in Deuteronomy 25 that he's quoting from, it's not about animals. It's about human affairs. And so from the beginning, Paul's not doing something radically different. He's saying, do we not understand this passage to be about people? Is it not for our sake that this was written? I want to take a quick sidebar here and recognize in verse 10 that the dignity of work is defended here. We're not assembly line robots, but human industry, invention, creativity. They're driven by a hope, a good God-given hope that the work that we do ought to produce something good, something beautiful, something that would meet our needs. And similarly, the gospel minister's work is not outside of that good human desire to do something good with our labor and reap the rewards of that work. That is a good design. That is a good principle, and it applies also to ministers of the gospel. Number four, in terms of evidence, the pattern of the priests and Levites. He says, let's look at the Old Testament. Let's look at the sacrificial system. The priests and the Levites are fed from the offerings brought to the, to the altar. So it's not a new idea that those who devote their life in service of God to helping his people know him and rightly worship him, that that is gainful employment, that they earn their sustenance from that labor. And is, if that's not enough, if you don't have enough evidence, he plays a trump card and he says, also Jesus said so, in verse 14. <laughs> He's likely referring to uh, Jesus sending out the 12 in Matthew 10 to proclaim the gospel where he says the worker is worthy of his wages uh, as they're supposed to be uh, provided for in their work by those whom they are ministering to. So the necessary conclusion is, yes, duh, Paul is entitled to earn his living preaching the gospel. And now that Paul has proved his point, now that he has the right established that he should earn his living as a gospel minister, he says... Actually, I don't want it. You can keep it. What in the world? After all that labor proving it, why would he lay it down? Well, keep in mind that Paul is recognizing and convinced himself that his life as a minister of the gospel will take a cross shape. His life will not be different than Jesus's. It will be like his Savior's. And so first he has to establish what is rightfully his this pay, this pay is rightfully mine. And then, like Jesus who said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. So Paul clarifies that no one is robbing him of what he's due as an apostle. He freely lays it down. But why? Paul lays down his rights because he has gotten a glimpse of something far more precious than what earthly benefit he might gain from his employee. Have you ever done something that made no sense to everybody else? Uh, this happens to me a lot when I play games. I'm really bad at games. And so I do things and people are left scratching their heads like, what deep strategy is Manny trying to work at right now? 
And then we get to the end of the game and they realize, oh, no, no there wasn't a deep strategy. He's just really bad at it. it made, made no sense because it made no sense. Uh, Paul is not like that, actually. Paul ha does have a method to his apparent madness. He's living out what he hopes to see in the Corinthian Christians, and that is that something that is rightfully his, something that is good and proper, something that would make his life easier, it's nothing at all in comparison to what he's gained in Christ because he's doing his math different, right? To lay down what is rightfully his doesn't result in a negative number in his account. He isn't losing out on something. So he gives us four reasons why he would lay down his right as an apostle. First, verse 12, first part of verse 12, is to remove obstacles to the gospel. We endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way. For somebody who's experienced the move from death to life, from darkness to light, somebody who can now, with his eyes open, see the majesty of Christ, what could possibly be so valuable as to let it hinder the advance of the gospel? A salary? Surely not. And why would his receiving payment perhaps hinder the gospel? We don't know exactly for sure. Uh, some have speculated that uh, in, in Rome, in, in Corinth, uh, patronage played a role, and so people who paid others to do something like this would have expected some degree of control, and perhaps Paul wanted to be free of that. Uh, perhaps Paul wanted to uh, separate himself from those who, in doing this work, would actually seek a profit. Uh, but what we do know for sure is that in doing it, Paul is wanting to display, at least partially, like the beauty of a free gospel. It's just free. Christ did it all. He took the payment himself, and he offers it freely to us. And so it's Paul's privilege, as we'll see in a moment, that he would offer it also for free. I wonder what kinds of things we've allowed to hinder the progress of the gospel. Things that we feel like are rightfully ours that in the grand scheme of things actually hinder the gospel's advance. Perhaps things that you have not forgiven because you feel I'm right to not forgive that. My rights were violated and I won't forgive. Perhaps that has hindered the advance of the gospel. Maybe it's your anger. You believe I am righteously angry about something, and yet your anger has halted the progress of the gospel in someone's life, in some sphere of your own life. Perhaps a desire for comfort. Comfort's not inherently bad. We buy shoes that feel better than shoes that don't feel good. We choose office chairs that are good to sit in for a few hours. Comfort is not inherently bad. But where we've chosen comfort over the gospel's advance, I believe we've sinned. The same goes for security. Paul offers a second reason why he laid down, lays down his rights. For a greater joy, verses 15 through 18, lest the church at Corinth think that this is some passive-aggressive way of getting money now for his preaching, he clarifies that he's got his eyes on a greater reward. He says, I would rather die, which sounds a bit dramatic. My wife, uh, she's not here at this service, but if she was, she would tell you I've been known to be a bit dramatic at times. I have said things like, I would rather die than insert very, very minor thing here. <laughs> Is that what Paul's doing? Is he just being a little bit dramatic? I don't think so. Let's follow his line of reasoning. He's compelled to preach the gospel. He has to do that. He's been commissioned by Christ to do that. There is no way around it. He has to preach the gospel. And so you could understand preaching the gospel as being 
the absolute bare minimum of what Paul's supposed to do. It's his job. He's been called to preach the gospel. We often don't think much of people who just are doing their basic jobs. And so a few weeks ago, I was uh, in Chapel Hill. Uh, I'm going to recommend the gas station to you. I was uh, at a gas station. I had to use the restroom and went inside uh, and could not identify where the bathroom was. So I asked the attendant, the person who was paid to sit there and help customers, paying customers like myself with simple questions like, where's the bathroom? And you would have thought that I was just like the most inconsiderate person because this person was on the phone call with his buddy and could not be bothered to point out to me where the bathroom was. Um, I don't think he would win the Presidential Medal of Freedom for telling me where the bathroom is. It's just his job, and he wasn't doing it, right? It's the bare minimum. That's how Paul understands preaching the gospel. What else am I going to do? I've been called by the living God to do this. Am I not going to do that? No, I'm going to preach the gospel. That's the bare minimum. He sees that as his basic job description. If he preaches the gospel, well, congratulations, Paul. You did your job. You did what you're supposed to do. But if he's not just wanting to do the bare minimum, if he doesn't just want to phone it in and be like, no, yeah, I preach the gospel, I do what you asked me to do. If Jesus on the Damascus road transformed everything for Paul, if this is the great passion of his life, the light by which he sees everything, the very center of the universe, what else can Paul do beyond the bare minimum of preaching the gospel? I'll do it for free. There's my glory and there's my boast. Not a glory in myself, not a boast in myself, but an ecstatic rejoicing over Christ and what he's done. You want to know how worthy he is? I'll do it for free. I'd pay my own way to do this work. You want me to tell you how mind-blowingly good this Jesus is? I would run out of words. I want to offer up my whole life, not just a sermon, but all of my life. That's Paul's boast. It's not a look at me. It's a look at Christ. It's not, look how much I'm doing for Jesus, but look how much Jesus has done for me. He is worthy of this and everything. Can you believe how good Jesus is? That is the exclamation point of Paul's life. Can you believe how good he is? Can you believe how good he's been to me? Every part of Paul's life screams that at the top of his lungs. And so to lay down his salary is nothing at all that he might get to say, Jesus is glorious. Can you not see it? Is that your boast? Do you boast like that? How many of our stories of sacrifice for the kingdom revolve around our kingdoms? How many of the points of our stories of how much we've given up for Jesus are intended to elicit pity or admiration? What if instead we told the stories of our lives in a way that says, don't look at me except to look through me at Christ? What if we told the stories in a way that said, is it incredible that he would save somebody like me? Look at the Savior. Isn't Jesus worthy? Isn't he so precious that whatever our crowns that we would rightly earn for our labors, we would gladly throw them at his feet and say, Jesus is so worthy of everything, of all glory and all honor. It would look ridiculous for me 
to keep a crown on my head when the Savior is alive. And so I lay them before his feet. What if that was our testimony? Who is a God like our God? Number three, he lays down his rights to reach many. He describes his freedom not in terms of doing whatever he wants, but as a freedom to adapt his preferences that he might reach more people with the gospel. He's not describing license or lawlessness. He's not saying, I get drunk with the drunkard so that I can reach them. It's not that. He still fundamentally understands himself as being in Christ, not under the law of self-righteousness, not outside of the law, but under the law of Christ. He's not compromising on the gospel. He's not watering it down. He's not distorting it. In fact, he's already said he wants to do nothing to lay a barrier in the advance of the gospel. What he's doing here is applying it. It's another gospel application of removing obstacles to the gospel that he describes. Does your gospel match a particular culture or ethnicity a little too much? Does it line up too neatly with your preferred political ideology? Paul wasn't willing for any of these man-centered divisions to keep the gospel far from anyone. In fact, in Ephesians, he describes the gospel of Jew and Gentile, the miracle of those two at enmity with one another, now being grafted together into one new man under the headship of Christ. Two people separated by the flesh made one new man in Christ. That's what Paul's describing here. Not a monoculture, not imperialism, but a news so good that it crashes through preference and it crashes through culture and knits enemies into brothers and sisters under the king, the family of God. I hope our Christianity looks like that. It's not so different from what Jesus did. In fact, Paul's ministry, as we've said, takes the form of Jesus' own. Consider Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, when he cleanses the leper in Luke 5, when he invites himself to Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19. I hope that our Christianity would look like Jesus's. Number four, he lays down his rights to share in the blessings. At the end of it all, Paul knows that he's just like those he's trying to reach. Apart from Christ, he also would be lost far from God and trusting his own righteousness. And so his labors are the labors of a man forgiven and free. The blessings of the gospel are for him too. And here there's a danger for all of us that in pursuit of the mission, we might baptize our selfish desires. We might forget our place. We might think we've somehow graduated from the gospel. We've already crossed that threshold and we got it from here. That's not how Paul understands himself. He's understood the free gift of grace as necessitating a response. To trust Jesus means to obey him too. To pick up our cross means to lay down our own life. And so Paul understands self-denial, laying down his rights, the discipline of his body as a worship response to the gospel. In fact, this is what he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, train yourself for godliness. For bodily training has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul knows the prize ahead. It's life with Christ, life in Christ eternal. But he also knows the danger of self-deception. He knows the danger of the flesh ruling him and not the spirit. And so instead of hoping for the best, he trains. He disciplines his body that it might be a pleasing sacrifice to God. You don't go to the gym for the first time and grab the biggest, heaviest thing you can find you will get hurt. You train 
you build up, you grow until you can pick up the biggest, heaviest thing you can find. Or if you're like me, you give up and you don't go back. <laughs> Sometimes we hope that we can do the difficult things of faith without any training. You're going to wake up tomorrow and run a marathon. You're probably going to die. Don't do it. <laughs> when temptation to cheat on my spouse comes, I'll resist. But do you resist checking out a jogger on the side of the road? When suffering comes, I'll, st I'll stand firm and Christ will be my comfort. But have you ever said no to a good thing to feast on Christ instead? Why are you so confident? I hope I can be patient. Have you persevered in prayer when the answer seems like it's continually no? Or do we just give that up? Paul wraps this section up radically reinterpreting the idea of Christian freedom. It's no longer a mechanism to gratify the flesh. Freedom is the arena where our worship takes place. Paul takes his freedom and uses it to lay it as an offering before the Lord because Jesus is so worthy of that worship. There's a way of living that's running a race with no goal in mind. Just wake up and do things and have no idea how one point connects to another. It's boxing with the air. And with that kind of life, honestly, comes real danger. I don't think Paul is saying in being disqualified that you might lose your salvation, but he's warning us that a life without this kind of discipline as a worship response to the gospel might actually be evidence of self-deception, that your words might proclaim the true gospel and your life not live up to it because you failed to discipline yourself, because you failed to apply the truth of the gospel as if it was just some fact for you to say, yeah, that's true, and file it away up here, and not a truth to live out. Paul is warning us of the danger of such a life. Those in Christ look like their Savior, the Savior who did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And Philippians tells us he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul knew that his life would be cross-shaped if he was going to follow Jesus. Do we know that? Are you expecting ease and comfort out of a life of following Christ? Are you putting your rights above the call to take up your cross and follow Jesus? Is your life marked by the humble service and the disciplined self-denial of our Savior? What does your life bear witness to? Does it declare that Jesus is so precious that even the good things in life pale in comparison? Does it declare that discomfort in this life is nothing at all because the prize ahead of God's people is so weighty in comparison. A life that understands what matters, what will last, who we belong to, is a life marked by self-denial, because we know who we are following, and we know what road he has taken, and we are called to follow him on that road. But the life of self-denial is not some joyless drudgery it's pure joy. It's actual, real joy. The joy of knowing what's real, what matters, and who we belong to. It's the joy of belonging to Christ forever. I hope that is your joy this morning. I hope that you have beheld Christ and seen how magnificent he is and worthy of worship. But if you haven't, I pray that you would and that you will place your trust in him.
Saints, our lives are to take a cross-shaped form, as Paul describes in this passage. But it's not meant to be just some muscular, like, let me show you how strong I am. It is meant to be a pure rejoicing in the wonder of what Christ has done for his people. And so that's my prayer for you, that you would see just how truly incredible what Christ has done really is, and that your whole life would bear witness to that, not only with words, and words are important, but that your words and your practice would line up, that they would tell the same story. And like Paul, you would run a race to win the prize, not a prize that is perishable, but one that lasts, one that's ours in Christ. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for Christ. You had no need to love a sinful people, and yet you did. I pray that you would open our eyes more and more to behold your majesty, your beauty, your splendor. God, and that we would be so joyful that like Paul we would say, oh, what a privilege it is to lay down our rights, to lay down what is rightfully ours, to throw our crowns before the king. Oh, because he's so much better. God, make that true for each of us. And for those far from you, Lord, would you, as you did to Paul, remove the scales from, his, from their eyes that they might behold the king and worship. Amen.